Listener discretion is advised. This episode contains details of murder, sexual assault, and other crimes. Listener's discretion is advised. A mom and her two sons fish at 12 Mile Creek in St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada. Two boys wander off to explore. Sean Labonte, 13, and his brother Paul spot a royal blue vinyl bag in the muddy water. They haul it ashore and open it. Quote, there was a green garbage bag in it, Sean would tell a jury. I ripped open the hole and I could see the back of a little kid. The boys run screaming. By nightfall, the body of a young girl is on a steel table in the morgue at St. Catherine's General Hospital. She was 43 pounds, 3 feet 7 inches tall, naked with bruises on her temples and tan lines from a two-piece bathing suit. A small bandage is still stuck to her right knee. Hello everyone, welcome back to Not Always Polite. This is episode 9 and today's case is going to be the Rallo family murders. This case is sort of confusing. There wasn't a ton of information. Well, there wasn't a ton of sources. There was a lot of information, but I could really only find it from one newspaper article that was written in a very confusing way. So I really hope I got everything. Um, In the end, we don't or I couldn't find out why he committed this murder, but uh, I'll go over what I could find, and I hope you guys like this case. And before I forget, uh, like I did last week, don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at NotAlwaysPolite. I give sneak peeks on the upcoming episodes, and I also share some of my favorite podcasts on there. So give me a follow, and let's get into the case. John George Rallo was born November 30th, 1942, in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, to Jack and Dorothy Rallo. He was an only child. His early years were spent in the city's modest North End before the family moved to East Mountain. Jack was an OPP forensic identification officer who photographed crime scenes. He left the force when his son was a teen and became a liquor control board manager. It is said that John adored his mother. By the time John entered Cathedral High School, he was setting himself apart from the crowd. While his peers stumbled to class dressed in denim and plaid, John often dressed as if he had a job interview or a date. He wasn't necessarily a handsome teen. He had unruly hair and lanky limbs, making him not conventionally attractive. Yet, there was something about him. He had style, confidence, and charm. School for John was a distraction from what he was really interested in, the ladies. He spent his free time standing on a downtown corner watching the girls pass by, which is super creepy in hindsight, but I guess as a teenager he didn't come off as creepy as if he were a grown adult or like an old man doing that. He dropped out of grade 12 and finished school by correspondence, so like distanced learning, Uh, and then he took management and communication courses at Mohawk College. While at Mohawk, he started his dating career. Quote, 
I used to go out with a girl whose idea of a great night was to go sit in Patty Green's drinking 15-cent craft beer. He would reminisce later in a letter written from prison. Now, that's a cheap score. I meant inexpensive. No, now that I think about it, I mean cheap. Okay, John. Though John fancied himself a ladies' man, there was one girl in particular who caught his eye. A lively brunette with green eyes and a quick smile named Sandra Paulington. Sandra was 15 at the time and John was 20. Sandra's parents were not happy with this as they felt John was too old and he was Catholic, which was a problem for them. Doug Paulington, Sandra's father, was a Hamilton firefighter who became fire chief in Cambridge and he did not approve of their relationship. Margaret Paulington, her mother, did not care for her daughter's suitor either, but when she saw Sandra head over heels for him, she gave in. Their courtship lasted four years. During that time, Sandra got a job as a title searcher at a law firm, and John landed a job as a roadman on a city survey crew. They got married on October 8, 1966. John wore a tux and a white bow tie. His curls slicked down into a tidier hairstyle. Sandra wore a veil over her dark bob. It was said that her smile was radiant. As a young couple, the Rollos started out in an apartment on Concession Street. One of their first purchases was a double bed. John moved up in the engineering department at City Hall, or The Hall, as he always called it, eventually becoming office manager. In their free time, Sandra learned to macrame and took yoga classes. John played hockey and was a Ticats fan. Then Sandra got pregnant. They bought a house on Dundurn Street South, and on October 30th, 1969, their son Jason was born. His sister followed in June of 1971. John says the night that Stephanie was born, Sandra hemorrhaged, her blood soaking their bed. Later, he says, Sandra cut the stains from the mattress cover. In 1972, the Rollos moved to 16 Lantana Court, seven houses on a quiet street. Going forward in the case, um, I'm going to refer to it as Lantana Court because that's how they refer to it in the article. Um, they parked their green Ford Maverick in the garage, planted a vegetable garden, and adopted a black and white cat. Their marriage seemed very happy and more or less normal to those looking in. Now, on the inside, John had some secrets that the rest of the neighborhood didn't know about. He had a stash of dirty magazines hidden in a drawer. Now, this wasn't just any kind of Playboy magazine, no. It was full of bondage pornography so hardcore it was illegal to own in Canada. John also had interest in other women. If John wasn't having lunch with a woman, he was girl-watching. In a letter written from prison, he would recall, quote, I used to stand in front of Laura Secord's at King Street and James every day over lunch hour, and the crowd was a better show than any you'd ever see at Diamond Gyms. And some of the people were old enough to know better, too. It used to be the best show in town. One woman he had an interaction with was Julia Glenn. She worked with John, and she was young, pretty, and she sometimes even gave John rides home from work. She actually even invited John and Sandra to her wedding. She was a stenographer at the hall, and John was her boss. 
They had lunch together at restaurants such as the Overdraft, Al Delicatessen's, and the Pioneer. When Julia split from her husband in early 1976, John was there to console her. He met her for a drink at the Golden Garter and called on her at her parents' house and waited for hours outside when he was told she was out with her girlfriends. John, get a life, buddy. My goodness. When Julia got her own apartment, he arrived with a plant and a bottle of wine. They ordered pizza. When he left at midnight, he kissed her on the lips, but they both insisted this friendship was just that, a friendship and strictly platonic. On any occasion I was with Julia Glenn, sir, my wife knew about it, John testified. But John's relationship with another woman, Mary Mar- Mar- Marjorie, sorry Marjorie, Marjorie Jane Smith was definitely not platonic. Marjorie was an attractive married woman in the hall's legal department. She dropped by John's office to ask about a cruise he had taken with Sandra, and soon they were regularly going for lunch. She confided she was having marital problems, and he told her he was too. In May of 1975, they started having sex. Quote, there were times when I would go home after being with the young lady, kiss my children goodnight and tuck them in bed and say to myself, what the heck are you doing? If you ever get found out, you are going to lose everything. Marjorie would testify John gave her, quote, friendship and love. The same month the affair began, Sandra went to the Bahamas with a group of women, and at first John didn't want her to go. But then suddenly, he started encouraging her to take time away. Quote, I thought the change might do us both some good. John and Marjorie had sex in his bed that he shared with Sandra at their home while she was away on the cruise. Nice one, John. You are a classy motherfucker. In August of 1975, Marjorie ended up ending her affair with John. Quote, the lady and I discussed it at length, John would testify. We both established our priorities. We both knew what she needed was her husband and what I needed was my wife and children. Another time, John and Sandra had a falling out over his relationship with one of their neighbors. One summer, their neighbor Kay Scordino came to borrow some liquor. Quote, as I handed it to her, I touched her on the breast, John said. Kay told all of Lanata Court, their neighborhood, and Sandra was obviously humiliated, as anyone would be. Sandra's marriage was already unsteady. A year earlier, John sought divorce advice from lawyer Dennis Roy. Sandra briefly stopped wearing her wedding ring and confided in girlfriends that John was not satisfying her sexually. For a day or two, they even listed the family house for sale. But divorce is messy, it's expensive, and embarrassing, John stated. So the pair decided to try and make it work and make the marriage last. Soon, the Rallos and the Scordinos were friends again. Just on Friday, the article didn't say what Friday, but I'm assuming this was the Friday before the murders, the two couples went overnight to Cambridge, staying at Sandra's parents' place while they were away. They skinny-dipped in the pool until 3 a.m., but John and Kay lingered a little too long alone in the water. John would dismiss this as horseplay, but Sandra was rightfully furious. And finally, the classy guy John even made a pass at Sandra's sister Janice. Janice is quoted to have avoided John all summer in 1976. 
He was becoming increasingly flirtatious, and when she was at Lantana Court babysitting her niece and nephew, John would often come home early and surprise her. She had taken to shutting herself in the bathroom and running the shower just to avoid seeing him. Quote, Janice was there for some time, but as far as conversation goes, it wasn't very lengthy because I dozed off twice. We were sitting outside in my father and mother's yard in the gazebo. John walks Janice to her car, and she says he wraps his arms around her and puts his hand down her pants. Janice says she signed a written statement about the alleged sexual assault at the time it happened, and she was told back then that the police had discovered John's stash of pornography when they searched his home. So, needless to say, John and Sandra's marriage was far from perfect, but no one expected it to take the turn that it did and go off the deep end to murder. So let's set the scene, shall we? The year is 1976, and Sandra Rallo, 29, is out talking with a music teacher, arranging piano lessons for herself and her husband, John. It will be nice to do something new together, she thinks. At home, John is with the children. They're up past their bedtime, but rules can be bent on a summer night. Jason and Stephanie sneak outside in their pajamas. A green, short-sleeved nighty with ties in the back for five-year-old Steph, her fair-haired, hazel eyes, and olive skin tone. Her six-year-old brother, he's a little husky, a blue-eyed boy wearing beige shorts um, as pajamas. They run around the court giggling in the moonlight. Sandra and Barb Schwinn sit in their living room having coffee. They talk about furniture that Sandra wants to buy, and they even talk about the children's blood types for whatever reason. Quote, because Sandra was tied up with Mrs. Swin, John would testify, I put the children to bed. Quote, I woke up Tuesday morning. I proceeded to go upstairs. I thought it was kind of unusual that neither one or both of the children were up yet. Stephanie, especially, was an early riser. She was up at the crack of dawn, usually. Jason, when he got up, usually would be downstairs watching TV. I looked in Jason's room and saw he wasn't in bed, nor Stephanie or Sandra in our bed. John would testify. John says he finds a typed note from Sandra on his desk that says she has left him for a rich lawyer. He said that she had taken the children and her wallet, nothing else. Not her purse or wedding ring, not the children's favorite toys, toothbrushes, or even their shoes. Quote, I was absolutely beside myself, John testifies. I thought things had gotten better. We seemed very happy. The children seemed happy. One night and a day pass before John tells anyone his family is gone. Let me repeat that. One night and one day pass before he tells anyone his family's gone. What? Does that not seem weird to anybody else? That's so sus to me. John, that's not covering your tracks very well. John claims he was getting anonymous phone calls. He says they started in the summer of 1975 and only came when Sandra was out of the house. He said it was a male caller and that he never identified himself. But once, John says, he let it slip that he was a lawyer. Quote, he knew an awful lot about our personal lives. John says he confronted his wife, who denied knowing anything. 
Now, strangely, John didn't change his phone number, and he also didn't seek help of the police about these phone calls. Instead, he uh, arranged a rendezvous, said, let's be grown-ups, let's meet. John says he waited outside the courthouse, the same courthouse where he would later stand trial, but the mysterious man on the phone never showed. So the next day, the Wednesday, John called in sick to work. The phone rings at the house, the daycare neighbors, Sandra's mother, Mark. John says that Sandra's not home, just not home. But he doesn't tell anyone that she's missing. He says that to relieve frustration over his missing family, he listens to the radio and dismantles his bed for whatever reason. He rips up the beige shag carpet, tears out a chunk of green under padding below the window. Quote, the children had been sick on it, the cat had soiled on it, and Sandra complained about the odor coming from the rug, John testified. And another thing to pass time, John does laundry. Now, this is all just to pass time because his family's missing and he's sad. Not calling the police, just doing weird household chores. And now, I know if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have some knowledge of murder, of crimes, All of these weird tasks that he's coincidentally doing sound an awful lot to me like he's cleaning up a crime scene, but maybe that's just me. So that afternoon, wearing shorts, a t-shirt, John, oh, and a yellow fishing hat, not just shorts and a t-shirt, a yellow fishing hat, John takes himself up to Canadian Tire on Upper James Street and returns a light switch. At dusk, he ventures out for a long drive. He says he went to the beach strip, Toronto, Brantford, and Caledonia. When he got back home at midnight, he decided to take a ride on his bike. In the schoolyard, he hits a, quote, rut or stone or brick or something and falls, cutting his hands. Sure, that's what cut your hands, John. Next day, John is up by 5.15 a.m., And he vacuums and dusts, quote, simply for something to do. Remember what I said like two seconds ago about cleaning up a crime scene? Anyways, he takes three pieces of carpet and one piece of under padding to the Glanford dump off Highway 6. He says, quote, a garbage picker asks for the carpet. John says he hands it over to that man. So after all this, Barb Swin is the first person he tells that Sandra and the children are gone. They have now been missing for more than 24 hours. At 11.30 a.m., he shows up at his father-in-law's office in Cambridge with the supposed letter from the lawyer. John and his father-in-law then go to the Paulington home, so Sandra's parents' house, and they sit down at the kitchen table where John and Sandra and the children have had dinners hours before their disappearance. John sobs into his hands, but Sandra's mother, Marg, later says that she didn't see any tears. John then meets with his lawyer, Dennis Roy, who recommends a private investigator. Not to tell the police, but a private investigator. John and Marg drive to his parents' house to break the news to them. Now, remember, he's telling everybody that she ran off with this lawyer. So the two mothers try to convince him to go to the hospital to have his injured hands treated, but he refuses. Dorothy goes with her son to Lantana Court, the neighborhood, 
she's the only person that he's allowed in the house at this point. And he has decided to spend the night at his parents. And while he gathers his things, she makes him a sandwich. Next day, John is at work by 9 a.m. He tells Marjorie that his family's disappeared. Now, this bitch Marjorie, he just told her that his family has disappeared. And she reminds him her birthday is the next day. And he promises that he has not forgotten about her birthday. Marjorie, what the fuck? At 10 a.m., John gets a visitor at his fourth floor office. He's visited by Sergeant Larry Dawson of the Hamilton-Wentworth Regional Police. And he's here to do a missing persons report. Finally, a missing persons report. Quote, I was just going to call you, John says. This is sort of where his account ends. And there are more facts that were reported to the media. But, um, yeah. So Doug Paulington beat him to missing persons report. Um, he phoned Chief Gordon Torres, who made the case a priority. Finally, somebody is making this a priority. Two missing children and a missing woman? Anyways, Dawson starts his notes in a small black book, saying, John Rallo, 33, missing wife, two children. Meanwhile, his boss, Inspector Norm Thompson, hears a radio report. A young girl's body has been pulled from 12 Mile Creek. The same afternoon, Inspector Thompson goes to the morgue with a photo of young Stephanie. At 2 p.m., Detective Dawson phones John and asks him to come to the station, saying they have more questions for him. John first goes to the bank. He changes the joint checking account that he shares with Sandra to his name only. Then he's chauffeured to the police station by a city hall driver who waits while John does a 90-minute interview. John talks about the mystery phone calls. Quote, If she came home tomorrow, I don't know whether I could forgive her or not because, you know... For a year, she made me feel like a heel, that I didn't believe her and I didn't trust her. For her to be proven wrong and to me be right. You made me feel like a damn fool for a year. At 4 p.m., John is allowed to go and lock up his office at the hall, and then he drives his car back to the station. He's back by 5 p.m. Meanwhile, Inspector Thompson makes his second trip to the morgue. He escorts Doug, Marge, Janice, and David. Doug goes in. Quote, that's her, he says, looking at the body of the little girl that's laying on the table. He emerges into the setting sun and sits on a curb. He asks to go in again to make sure it's her, but they gently refuse. Evening time rolls around, and John is at the police station, like I said. He's wearing what is quoted to be a green leisure suit, now, I assume a green leisure suit is like a sweat pants set. Um, but anyways, he's wearing a green leisure suit, a white t-shirt, and round glasses. At 7 p.m., Inspector Thompson breaks the news to John that Stephanie's body has been found. John then puts his head on Thompson's shoulder. Quote, there were no tears in his eyes, the inspector recalls. Now, this does seem to be a running theme here with this guy. John hands over his house and car keys so the vehicle can be taken in to be looked over. Thompson calls the Center of Forensic Sciences in Toronto and asks for, quote, a biological examiner to come to Hamilton. He summons Detective Ed Codis and Bob Slack to go with him to Lantana Court. 
They take their shoes off and they get to have their first look inside. They say the house is in complete shambles. Furniture's moved, carpet's torn up, um, which John chalks up to cleaning up cat urine. Back at the station, Slacks asks John why the house is in such a mess. John tells him about the smelly carpet and the Glanford dump. John's father shows up with a lawyer, William Hubner. After that, John won't answer any more questions, which is probably best for him at this point. At 11.30 p.m., John Rollo is charged with murdering his daughter, Stephanie. William Taustak of the Center of Forensic Sciences arrives at Lantana Courthouse. His trained eye spots the remnants of spatters and drops and smears. Quote, this bloody house, he says. Detective Codis spends two days digging through the garbage at the dump. He finds a large piece of bloodied shag carpet that matches the rug from the Rollo home. However, this is not at the Glanford dump where John insists he went, but rather the Ottawa Street dump. A security guard remembers John with three garbage bags and two boxes. Police divers are, at the same time, scouring the waterways for Sandra and Jason. Bizarrely, they actually end up finding other bodies, but not the ones they're looking for. They find a Hamilton man who'd disappeared on a fishing trip in the spring is found behind a large wheel of his car submerged in the 12-mile creek. It's determined that he had a heart attack. A middle-aged woman who committed suicide is also recovered. Stephanie is buried to rest at the cemetery. The service begins with an open casket, but it's noted that the lid was closed midway through because her body started turning black. OPP at this time are searching from a helicopter, and they spot a bundle floating in the Welland Canal with feet sticking out. At 12.27 p.m., an officer notes the discovery, quote, a green cloth zippered sleeping bag, and the bag was tied with what appeared to be rope and sash cord, and the bag was open at one end, with part of a green plastic garbage bag sticking out the open end. I observed a pair of feet with toenails painted red. The rope and sash cord are elaborately tied, quote, each knot relating to the next knot. Remember John's super weird porn stash? Yeah, remember that. There are two sleeping bags, a blue inner one and a green outer one with a label sewn into its lining. And guess what that label says? It says Jason Rallo. Sandra's body is badly decomposed. Her green eyes are discolored. There is a round hole above her right ear, bruising to her thighs, forearms, and face. The tip of her nose is crushed, and there's a red mark on her chest. Her tongue protrudes from between her teeth, which is typical of strangulation. Doug goes back to the morgue to identify this body as well. That poor man. Yes, I would say that is her. Detectives Slack and Dawson bring D John from the jail to the station at 8.50 p.m. John, says Slack, it is my duty to inform you of the death of your wife, Sandra. It is also my duty to advise you that you are being charged with two counts of murder concerning the death of Sandra Rallo and John Jason Rallo. Once again, John appears to be upset, but he doesn't cry. Surprise, surprise. Sandra's buried alongside her daughter. Men who were ushers at her wedding are her pallbearers. The police then call off the search for Jason. 
A back door at Central Police Station opens and a man and his lawyer slip out into the chilly evening. Now get this. John Rallo was then released on $100,000 bail. He had undergone 58 days of psychiatric tests, including sessions with Truth Serum at Clark Institute in Toronto. Doctors had determined him mentally fit to stand trial. Along with that, a judge deemed him fit for bail. What the fuck? For the next year, John lives with his parents. Every day, he puts flowers on the grave shared by his wife and daughter, the same one with the space left for his son, Jason. He goes to the Lantana courthouse, mows the grass around his children's swing set, and walks through the house. He waves at his neighbors, but they don't speak to him. John's lawyer sends a letter to Mayor Jack McDonald asking if John could return to work at City Hall, but that request is confused. Not confused, refused. <laughs> I'm confused. Fuck. This is the biggest case that Hamilton has seen since Evelyn Dick took the stand. John Rallo faces three counts of first-degree murder. The courtroom is packed, people sitting shoulder to shoulder, holding overcoats and brown lunch bags in their laps. Others line down the hallway, hoping to nab a seat should anyone leave. A team of Hamilton Specter reporters are there along with the national press. The Crown will call 48 witnesses. They have nearly 150 exhibits will be introduced, and a jury of nine men and three women are chosen for the trial. A union official, a typist, two truck drivers, a secretary, three factory workers, a housewife, a foreman, a college student, and a supervisor. Crown attorney Anton Zurwa opens his case in front of Justice John O'Driscoll. Decades later, in his own judge's chambers at the John Sapinka Courthouse, Zurwa will recall the oddness of prosecuting such a big case in such a small city. He was the same age as Rallo and had a son the same age as Stephanie. He had a passing acquaintance relationship with Sandra from her law office jobs. He worked several coroner's inquests that Detective Rollo, John's cousin, worked. Quote, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you are here and have been chosen, a panel of 12, to determine the guilt or innocence of John Rollo. He is charged with the murder of his wife and son and his daughter. You will hear all about the findings of bodies how they were packaged and anchors placed in those packages, and how they were ultimately found in their watery graves. So the Crown presents the case as follows. They say John planned it. He had for months been fabricating a story about a mysterious lawyer, sullying his wife's reputation, and creating a scapegoat, basically. Then he and Sandra argue in their room. Maybe she confronts him about an affair, or he accuses her. He punches her in the face. Her nose is damaged and her teeth are loosened. Her blood soaks into the shag carpet below the window and it spatters the red drapes and the legs of a bench. It gets on the sheets and the mattress. A cord for the blinds is handy and John strangles Sandra. During this time, maybe the children come in. They become innocent witnesses to their dad's fury. He kills them too, suffocating each one with a pillow in a pretty flowered pillowcase. 
It takes four minutes for Stephanie to die. John begins cleaning up. He takes the bodies to the basement, strips them, and puts the clothes, along with the bloody linens, into the washing machine. Blood drips onto the leather slippers and smears on a door jamb and a wall, trickles down the drain in the concrete floor. It is type B blood. Sandra, coincidentally, has type B blood. He takes two green garbage bags from the package on his workbench, puts one over his wife's head and the other over her red polished toenails. He slides her into a sleeping bag. He then puts two anchors from Canadian Tire on Upper James Street into the bag. He binds the whole package with knots that he may or may not have learned from those dirty magazines. Stephanie requires just one garbage bag and one anchor because she's so small. He folds her into the fetal position and stuffs her inside a blue duffel bag sold at Canadian Tire on Upper James. He zippers it shut. Jason is likely put inside a garbage bag as well and then likely into a sleeping bag. John hauls the furniture out of their bedroom and rips up the shag carpet and under padding. He washes his bloody hands in the bathroom. There's a bike mark from his wedding ring, leaving smears on the faucet and counter. There's blood in the bathtub from his shower. In the basement, he crudely taps out a Dear John note on Sandra's Underwood typewriter. So he's forging this letter from the lawyer. After dark, he brings the bodies into the garage, where more blood drips, places them in the trunk of his car, and then drives to dump them in the waterways around St. Catharines. The trial lasts a total of 16 days. Hamilton lawyers had a unique reputation in 1977 for complete disclosure. There was no secrets kept by the defense and the Crown, but there were things that the jury never heard. The Rollo jury didn't ever hear about John's bondage pornography and never knew of the link between it and the knots that were binding Sandra's body together. The jury also never heard about John groping his sister-in-law when she tried to confront him. So Zura, who will still not talk of those two issues, decided before the trial that they might muddy the legal waters and it could be grounds for an appeal. He needed to make the pieces fit, quote, don't leave anything tangled. And he said that it needs to be fair, quote, this was not trial by ambush. Rollo had the opportunity to clearly get out his story. Lawyer Dennis Roy and P.I. Ron Arnold are called to testify. Neighbors give their accounts, cops refer to their notebooks, and the boy who found Stephanie is obviously nervous, but he testifies. Doug Paulington is angry and Marg is sad. Lover Marjorie weeps in the audience and Julia Glenn smiles and laughs. I'm assuming she's nervous. So John's bail is revoked, as it should be. And in the wake of testimony from Marjorie Smith, the public outrage reaches a new high. John is not only an accused murderer, he's an admitted adulterer. Zerah fears John may skip town or be in danger, so they have no choice but to revoke his bail, as they should. Sorry, I'm kind of fast-forwarding through a bunch of this stuff. Um, There wasn't a ton of information about the trial, but we're just going to get right on through it. At this point, the jury is entering the courtroom. 
They deliberated for six hours. John sits silently, legs crossed, hands clasped in his lap, wearing a dark blue suit. Jury foreman Thomas Prince reads the verdict. On the count of first-degree murder for the death of Stephanie Rollo, guilty. On the count of first-degree murder for death of Sandra Rollo, guilty. On the count of first-degree murder for the death of Jason Rollo, guilty. Margaret Paulington, Sandra's mother, collapses in tears. Her husband, Doug, comforts her. The remaining daughter, Janice, weeps. John stands, clenching the rail of the prisoner's box. He pauses, licks his lips, and bows his head. And then he looks directly at the judge. Quote, well, my lord, in your charge to the jury, you said the past 16 months has been hell for me. What has kept my head above water is that I know I did not do it. But more importantly, I know Sandra knows I did not do it. Stephanie knows I did not do it. And Jason, wherever he may be, knows I did not do it. That is all, my lord. Each conviction carries a sentence of life imprisonment without the eligibility for parole for 25 years to be served concurrently. Coincidentally, just one month before John killed his family, Canada abolished the death penalty. John is held at the Barton Street Jail over the holidays and then moved to the Kingston Penitentiary on February 13, 1978. 30 days after he's found guilty, John files an appeal. He claims the trial judge made an error in the law and a blood analyst who testified did not qualify as an expert. November 23, 1978, the Ontario Court of Appeals upholds John's conviction. In 1980, the Supreme Court of Canada also turns down his appeal. Three days after the Ontario Appeal Court decision, Inspector Norm Thompson pays John a visit. Thompson was a lean investigator on the murders, as you know, and he and his wife, Joyce, became very close with the Paulingtons, even going with them to a seance in the hopes of learning where Jason is. That same question brings Thompson to John now, and John says he doesn't know where his son is. This is something John never admits or confesses to. He, to this very day, has not disclosed the location of Jason's body, and it's speculated that this is something he will be taking with him to his grave. In April of 1977, while John was out on bail, a boy's skeleton was found in Springwater Park near Barrie. A pathologist used dental records and confirmed the child was Jason. The minister who baptized Jason performed the funeral as the boy was laid to rest with his mother and sister. It was three whole months before anyone realized the mistake. An RCMP investigation in Alberta into the disappearance of another little boy led the detectives to Springwater. The body was exhumed and the skull was sent to a forensic dentist in Connecticut. The error was confirmed. The little boy was Jamie Shear, five. He had disappeared a year earlier and he and his mom went to Toronto with a man who escaped from a Florida prison. Jamie's mom has since committed suicide. Doug and Mark Paulington had visited the grave every week. John's bail conditions prevented him from attending the funeral, but he sent word to the funeral home that there shouldn't be a procession for the boy. Perhaps he knew it wasn't his son. In 1979, John meets a woman and they begin dating while John is on one of his family visits. She is identified to prison officials as a family friend, not his girlfriend. 
By 1992, the couple has had four private visits, spending 72 hours at a time in a trailer on prison grounds. In 1997, John proposes. Neither John nor parole officers inform the National Parole Board that he's in a relationship. It isn't until there is a reference to her in a psychological report that the board learns the truth. In the year 2000, the board rebukes John and the Correctional Service of Canada for being deceptive. In May of 2005, their romance ends. Backtracking a little, in November of 1983, John is transferred to a medium-security Warkworth Penitentiary near Campbellford. By 1986, John is going out into the community on escorted temporary absences. Some of those are used to return to Hamilton to celebrate holidays with his parents and cousins. An unarmed male security guard stays, quote, in sight and sound of him at all times. The Paulingtons are actually not told of these visits at all. It isn't until five years later, when people begin telling them they've seen John in Hamilton, that they become aware. If I was them, I would be furious. In February of 1990, John transfers to Beaver Creek Institution, a minimum security facility in Gravenhurst. He is, like all well-behaved inmates, cascading down the security levels. So, fast-forwarding a little bit to April 26, 2008. John gets out after nearly 32 years in prison. The triple murderer is granted day parole. He has not confessed, he has not revealed what he did with Jason, but he is now free. But this story isn't over yet. COVID-19. This man. Okay, so it says, COVID-19 has given triple killer John Rallo what he has wanted for years. The ability to live full time in the community. The aging and reportedly ill federal officer who murdered his wife and small children has been granted an expanded medical leave from his Sudbury halfway house to protect him from the coronavirus. The Parole Board of Canada decided Tuesday that for the next 90 days, John Rollo, 77, can live full-time in the home he shares with his girlfriend. I'm sorry, what the fuck? I hope this bitch gets coronavirus. Fuck him. So what they mean by day parole is that he, during the day, can go and live his life, and then at night he comes home to a halfway house and he has to report in every night that he is there. So basically... Instead of living in this halfway house with however many other people, this guy is allowed to go and live with his girlfriend and live a normal life. Um, Until recently, Rollo was living with his longtime girlfriend for five days a week and spending the other two nights in his halfway house. So for now, he is living his best life and... It opens up the possibility that when this pandemic is over, the parole board will look back at his months of freedom and decide, despite no confession, no remorse, no disclosure of where his son is, that they could make this permanent. Like, he could be a permanent member of society after this is over, even though he is still guilty of these murders and they still don't know where Jason's body is. And that just seems insane to me like i don't know i just can't believe it you'll have to let me know what you guys think on instagram or twitter about this because like we he never admitted to it so we don't have a motive besides he was mad at his wife and then his kids were like wrong place wrong time kind of thing 
um, I don't know. I don't know what to think. I, it's really fucked up, and I'm, I'm glad I covered it because this is just, like, some crazy shit. And on that note, I want to thank everybody for coming back for episode 9 of Not Always Polite. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Not Always Polite. And I'd like to give a special shout out to Miss Stella Bella. I know your mom listens to this podcast and um, you're probably sick of hearing my voice. But shout out to Stella. Thank you for listening, even though you have no choice. Have a good day, guys. And I hope you come back for next week for episode 10. Bye.